It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey, this is Corey Zimmerman. I just want to thank everybody for listening this far. As you might imagine, we were just a startup production company when we started this podcast and we had to sort of learn on the fly how to work with audio mixing and mastering we had to work with the equipment we had but steadily we've been gathering new equipment and we've rapidly climbed the learning curve and our goal ultimately is to bring you the best quality podcast we can you might notice this episode sounds a lot better and we will continue to increase the quality of each episode for you because that's what you deserve as the listener Thank you once again for your support and for listening. Enjoy. The views and opinions expressed by contributors on the Spoon River Gothic podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the position of the host. Material heard on the Spoon River Gothic podcast is intended for adult listeners. This podcast deals with mature topics that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide, part two. Hello, no one is available to take your call. Please leave a message after the tone. Chapter 23 Muddy Waters Joyce Carol Oates once wrote, In love there are two things, bodies and words. But what is love besides a set of chemically fueled emotions, behaviors characterized by intimacy, passion, and commitment? 
relationships are enormously complex creatures. And I am sure I am not the only one still struggling to understand how they operate. But what I am certain of is that it depends on what tendencies people bring along to the table. A relationship is a science as much as an art, even an instinctual impulse. The goal is to identify the key to unlocking those redundancies, standard features of romantic phenomenon. Proverbially, understanding love is akin to a blind man examining the different parts of an elephant. That theoretical pantry with the main ingredients required for lasting love. Relationship outcomes depend not only on the specific qualities of each partner, but also on the unique patterns that emerge within the partner's qualities that intersect. Opportunities and motivations for interdependence aid cognitive, effective, motivational, and behavioral merging between partners. Clinically speaking, bear with me. And that the long-term trajectory of relationship dynamics is affected by each partner's continually updated perceptions of the couple's interactions and experiences. People evaluate their relationships and partners according to a set of positive and negative constructs, which tend to be negatively interrelated. Also, responsive behaviors promote relationship quality for both the self and the partner. How partners communicate about and cope with relationship events affects long-term relationship quality and stability. Still there? Partners in committed relationships exhibit thoughts and behaviors that promote the relationship's perseverance over time, even if doing so involves self-perceptive biases. In other words, lying to oneself for love or the illusion of such. People bring certain qualities of personality and temperament to their relationships, some of which influence their own and their partner's well-being in a negative manner. People also bring specific goals and needs to their relationships, and the dynamics between the two partners affect how much they succeed in achieving these goals and meeting these needs. People bring standards and tend to experience greater relationship well-being when the relationships exceed these standards. But a partner's goals and motives are not always respected. And in the presence of attractive alternatives, the blonde next door, the buff that cleans the pool, bosses dangling advancement like a carrot on a stick, that stranger at the bar making eyes, can threaten relationship quality and survival. High demands external to the relationship predict worse outcomes. Significantly, if the demands exceed the two partners, individual or combined, resources for coping. Relationships are rooted in social networks and cultural milieu, including norms, practices, and traditions that shape the nature and trajectory of those relationships. Yet still, relationships are complicated. The true challenge, and if not cared for attentively, they wither and die on the vine. For instance, Rod Franciscovich, boyfriend of Donna's at the time of her death, had been married to Lisa Gray for several years, sharing two wonderful daughters. Yet things inevitably got shaky, as they tend to do. And when things get unstable, even the fixative of family expectation, social and peer pressure, and even religious dogma cannot ease those subterranean tremors. When the blind man fails to find the right ingredients in the pantry, the cake will fall. Gravity, after all, defines breaking point, and we all have one. Everyone is susceptible to the weight of love vulnerable and prone to reaching that pivotal moment when those words roll off of our weary tongues i'd rather be happy and alone than with you and miserable after the divorce was finalized rod maintained his relationship with his children 
and pay child support to ensure their livelihood and meet the qualifications allowed by judge. And Rod briefly enjoyed bachelorhood until he met Donna Tompkins that fateful day in the subterranean of the National Bank of Canton. Donna herself enduring a rocky separation and long wait to sign those papers of marital emancipation could relate. Rod told investigators from the task force that had formed with the mission of uncovering the causes of Donna and her own three-year-old daughter Justine's untimely deaths. Bodies found on a molten mattress in the burnt-out belly of an old Victorian in which they lived, in the heart of the rural, midwestern community of Canton, Illinois. He had met her through the St. Mary's Catholic Church, Rod told Illinois State Police Special Agent Kenneth Kedzer, who sat across from Rod in the small interview room at the Canton Police Department. Detective Marty Boten, flanking the nervous interviewee. Rod in the middle chair, scooted back towards the wall, palms on his quivering knees, and said he also knew Donna from the National Bank, where she worked as a secretary to the trust officer, David Haynes, also property manager for the Victorian, as the home was held in the trust with the bank. I went to see about a bounce check, said Rod, and they sent me to the customer service department, which is in the basement. There I saw Donna, and after I worked out the matter with the bounce check, she followed me, and I stopped and said hello. We talked for a bit, and I asked her out on a date, but she said she was going through a rough divorce and didn't think it was a good time to be seeing anybody. Do you know when Donna left her husband John, asked Detective Boten, at ease in his own chair? Early 92, I believe, said Rod. Tell us more about your relationship with Donna, asked the detective, pinned to pad. Well, we started out slow, said Rod. She was very cautious and insistent upon that. I think she felt vulnerable. In the first few times we went out, we went out of town to Norris, Farmington to eat, and we went shopping in Peoria. The investigators asked if they ever took along little Justine, and Rod said they had a few times, but usually she stayed with the babysitter. And no, said Rod, Donna hadn't been living in her current apartment. She'd been living in another place, also on First Avenue, but a bit to the north, he said. And Rod said they had become more intimate lately, in the past few weeks and months specifically. Did you write Donna any love letters? One or two, he said. Why did they turn up? Tell us about her divorce, asked Detective Bowden. Well, she was hoping it would all be over by the first of the year, said Rod. She was tired of dealing with John. He treated her like shit, always screaming at her. And the investigators asked if he was aware of any money troubles John may have been having. And Rod said, yeah, Donna told me John was fighting with his family over the farm. She said he lost his temper and blew up on his dad or brother. Maybe it was his uncle. Yeah, he got in a fistfight with his uncle, if I remember correctly. You said they fought a lot, John and Donna, asked the detective. Yeah, even after they separated, he was always calling her on the phone and coming over to her place to argue with her. And she was fed up with it. And who else had Donna dated after the separation? Well, before we started dating, she was seeing a guy named Terry Haynes. He drives for UPS, and I think they also met at the bank. Special Agent Kedger then spoke up, asking Rod where he worked, filling in some of the more rudimentary questions he was always sure to include in his thorough reporting. Ron told investigators he worked at Office Max in Peoria, usually from 10 to 2 p.m. Sometimes I stop by Donna's after work, he said. Do you spend the night often? Yes, Rod said, sometimes. How often would you say? Once or twice a week, I guess, but only for the last month or so. And where do you park when you go to Donna's? And back behind the house. What was the make and model again? It's a truck. 1979 Nissan 280ZX. Color? Blue. Two-tone. And when you stay at Donna's, what does she usually wear to bed? His question took Rod by surprise, but he answered. Usually panties or a white cotton robe, I guess, you know, with the open front and tie. Does she wear a top to sleep in? No, not usually. Just panties, said Rod. So no top, asked the Tutka Bowden. I don't remember her ever wearing a top or a t-shirt to bed, said Rod. And where did Donna sleep? Where would you guys sleep when you stayed the night? She always slept on the couch, which folded into a bed, and that's where we would sleep. Hide a bed? Yeah, said Rod. 
Did Donna use the porch light often? Asked Agent Kedzer. From what I remember, she only used it once when I first came over to her new place. The detectives then asked if Justine would be asleep by the time he arrived. And Rod told him that it was usually late, so yes. Donna was trying to get Justine in the habit of going to bed earlier. Between 8.30 and 9, he said. And what would the little one wear to bed? A sweatsuit, and she had a little pair of kid pajamas. Tell us about the holidays. Were the two of you together? Well, she flew back east to Connecticut over Christmas to be with her family, so... Not really. Had John accompanied her? Nobody did get her a boombox for Christmas. And what did he get Justine? Asked Detective Bowden. But Rod was not sure, and no, neither did he know if she had a favorite toy. The investigators asked about the week leading up to the fire, and Rod said, Well, Thursday night. January 7th, asked Agent Kedzer. Yes, the 7th, said Rod. I came home from work around 10.45 that night. Don had called me up earlier at work, and we talked for a bit. But I hung up on her because of a customer. What did you do once you got home from work? I got cleaned up and ate, and then I went over to her house around 1, 1.30. A.M., asked Agent Kedzer. Yes. Were you too intimate that night, asked Detective Bowden. Yes, we made love. Did you use any type of contraceptive while you had intercourse? Well, Donna used some spermicide. And then what happened after you were intimate? Donna had to be at work early the next morning. I remember Friday the 18th, asked Agent Kedzer. Yes, the 18th. She got Justine out of bed and then she woke me up and gave me a key to her apartment. And then she left and I fell back asleep until around 9 or 10 a.m., asked Agent Kedzer. Rod paused and then said, I folded up the couch, put the cushions back on. Where did Donna keep the cushions? On the floor. I put them back on the couch. She kept two bed-type regular pillows on the couch and I folded the blanket and put it where Donna kept it on the day bed in the kitchen. She didn't use that bed. Can you describe the blanket? It was pink, I think, with flowers on one side, kind of cheap material. Did you see her again the day after she left the residence? No, said Rod. I didn't see her again until the next day. Saturday, January 9th, asked Agent Kedzer, steadfast to his pad. Rod then stated he was off work on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, all weekend, essentially. The 8th, 9th, and Sunday the 10th, asked Agent Kedzer, triple checking. Donna came over around 5.30 or 6 because we were going to cook steaks on the grill. So your house this time? Yes, my house. She said she would stop and buy some spermicide on the way, but she forgot. What type of spermicide did she use? I don't know, the foamy kind? Did Donna spend the night? Yes. Were you intimate again? Yes. Without contraceptive? Yes. Unprotected? Yes. Was this the first time you failed to use a contraceptive, asked the agent? No, we had done it without protection before. Rod told the investigators that Donna woke up early that Sunday morning and went home. Donna knew that John would have to do chores Sunday, so he'd be dropping Justin off early. Then they went to church before coming back over. So on Sunday the 10th, asked Agent Kedzer, Donna returned to your residence after Mass, this time with Justine, correct? Correct, said Rod. And then what happened, asked Detective Bowden. How long did the two stay? Not long. She had to work that night at the Elks. Kmart was having a Christmas party, and she was waitressing. Rod said that Donna worked at the bank Monday morning. Monday the 11th, asked Agent Kedzer. Yes, Monday the 11th. And I went to work around 2. I remember Donna called me at work once or twice. I got off at 10, went straight home, and I was there by 11. 11 p.m.? Yes. Did you see Donna? Yes. No. Yes, 11 p.m., but no, I did not see Donna that night. So did you, so you did not see Donna on the evening of the 11th, or early Tuesday the 12th, around 1, 1.30 in the morning? No, said Rod. I was off Tuesday the 11th, and I did laundry at my brother's house. He lives right across the street. When you say right across the street, you mean directly across the street? Yes, directly across the street. What did you do that evening, the night of the 11th? Asked the detective. I went with my brother to Walmart, and what did you purchase? Furnace filters, and I also bought a new CD case. Then what did you do? Uh, my roommate Scott and I sat around the kitchen and drank screwdrivers with my brother. His house or yours? 
mine. Did you talk to Donna again that night? Yeah, she called around 10, 10, 15 to let me know this cartoon, Ren and Stimpy, was on TV. We watched it together four or five days ago, said Rod. She thought it was a funny show. It was kind of silly. She also said that John called and that when Justine had been there over the weekend, he felt that she looked too thin and that annoyed Donna. And I asked her uh, what she had done after work and she said that she napped a bit and said it was nice not to do anything at all. She told me she bought some Canadian mist and some schnapps to go with apple cider or juice. And she said something strange, that this guy had come into the bank that day to ask her out. And get this, it was the ex-husband of the woman John is secretly dating. Donna said she thought it was really weird and that she was not interested at all. The officers made eyes, jotted in their legal pads, and Detective Bowden asked Rod if they had seen each other that night. And Rod said no, he had not, and that they did not make any plans for the following day. That they simply hung up after 10 or 15 minutes on the phone, and that his brother went home soon after that. Scott and I stayed up till around 1, said Rod, and I personally, as your host, investigative enthusiast, cannot seem to shake the knowledge that at 1am is the time Rod said he usually goes to Donna's. But Rod told investigators, I do not think I went to see Donna that night. Can you describe to us your recollection of the morning of January 13th, asked Special Agent Kedzer. <sighs> Rod took a breath, and with a long, inward-looking stare, he appeared to be looking into the far reaches of the back of his mind, as he stated in a monotonous tone, I woke up at 8.30, I think I went over to my brother's to get my laundry. I left it there the night before, I think but I'm not sure. And then around 1 or 1.15 in the afternoon, I was putting my tie on, getting ready for work. And that's when Terry showed up. Terry Haynes? Yeah, Terry Haynes. He walked right in, didn't even knock. He came right up to me and said he wanted to shake my hand. Then he hugged me, and I wondered what the hell was going on. And that's when he whispered in my ear that Don and Justine were dead. He said there had been a fire at the apartment. I kind of went into shock. I, I was confused. And then he left and I called off work that day and the next. Wednesday the 13th and Thursday the 14th, correct? That's Special Agent Kedzer? Yeah. So you went back to work on Friday, asked Detective Bowden. Friday the 15th, correct? Asked the agent. Yes, said Rod. And did you attend the funeral? I did. Did you speak with the family? No, I avoided them. Her father hated me. Didn't want anything to do with me. Why is that? Asked the investigators, making eyes. He was a strict Catholic. He told Donna I was going to muddy the waters. The officers jotted and squirmed in their chairs, clearing their throats. Rod maintained his empty gaze, though downward. Let's back up, Rod. Can I call you Rod? asked Agent Kedzer. Sure. Rod, I'd like to know more about Donna's apartment. Can you describe the interior of the residence? Well, I helped her move in last fall. Fall of 92, correct? asked Agent Kedzer. Yeah, that's correct. She had traded her electric stove to her previous landlord's for a gas one. And me and Scott helped her move it in and hook it up, said Rod. So you hooked up the gas yourself? Yes, I hooked it up. I checked it and it was fine. You checked it? I did. How? I used dish soap, you know. And when Terry told me there had been a fire, the first thing that crossed my mind was that there may have been a gas leak from the stove, he said. Had she had problems with gas leaks before? Do you know if the residence had a smoke detector? I, I don't know. Not that I remember. I mean, I don't recall seeing one, no. And can you tell us more about the furniture, the hide-a-bed? How long had she had the sofa? Uh, she got it not long ago, said Rod. Do you know where it came from, where she bought it? I think Melgreen's furniture on the square is where she bought it. I think that's where I think that's what Donna told me. She said that she had bought it on installment. Detective Bowden cleared his throat, struggling not to make eyes with Agent Kedzer, steadfast with his jotting. And the daybed in the kitchen belonged to John, but Donna didn't use it. There was a TV in the living room where Donna slept. Which wall? The north, I think. North wall, said the agent. Yes. It was on a blue handmade bookcase with drawers beneath. Did Donna wear glasses, asked the detective. Sometimes to work, yes, but at home she only wore them to read, said Dorot. And where would she keep the glasses when not wearing them? 
on a small table besides the couch usually. What about jewelry? Did she wear jewelry, rings, necklaces? She wore a gold ring on her right hand, said Rod. I think it had her mother's initials inside the band. And she wore a gold watch. What brand? Casio, I think. Purse? I can't remember what her purse looked like. I think it was green, maybe. Did she smoke? Did Donna smoke? Um, sometimes. What brand? Marlboro Lights, sometimes Morales, said Rod. You mentioned she woke up the morning of Tuesday the 12th to give you a key to the residence. Is that correct? Yes. Are you aware of any other individuals who may be in possession of a key to the apartment? Asked Agent Ketzer. Anyone who Donna may have also given a key. No, I'm not sure, but I think the bank might have one. Are you still in possession of the key Donna had given you? I am, but I don't have it on me. It's at home, said Rod. We're going to need that, said Special Agent Ketzer. Sure, said Rod. About the gas, asked the detective. Did she have any other issues? Maybe with the water heater or furnace? Any leaks? She had a boiler. All I know is that it was always really hot in the apartment. She had to open a window all the time to let it cool down. Even on cold days, said Rod. Did she ever leave it open in the night? Did she ever complain about any of the other tenants? I'm, I'm not sure. I don't remember. And how had Donna's mood been lately? Well, I told her about this Catholic retreat called Cursillo. It's a three-day retreat in Peoria, sort of a course in Christianity. I'd been before, and I told her it might help since she had been very down about the divorce. She had been getting back into the church and into her faith, so I suggested she try it out. So I sponsored her. And after Cursillo, she was in good spirits, feeling really good, said Rod. What about any other outside work activities? Asked the detective. Well, she was taking night classes at Spoon River College. What days? Asked Agent Kenzer. Monday nights. What course was she taking? Uh, it was a program from the bank. She took it with another co-worker, some guy. People at the bank were gossiping that he and Donna were, well, you know. Some thought they were dating, said Rod. Were they? Asked Detective Bowden. No, no, I asked her about it, and she said they were just friends, said Rod. Did you believe her? Of course. The officers made eyes, jotted, shuffled in their chairs. Legal pads filled up. Coffee dripped. Clocks ticked. Knees bounced. Throats were cleared. And the interview commenced at 10 o'clock p.m. on January 17th, 1993. One day after the bodies of 30-year-old Donna and her 3-year-old Justine were lowered into the frozen Midwestern ground. Muddied waters. Page by page. Cup by cup. Questions answered. And a wise philosopher once said, quote, They muddied the water to make it seem deep, deep in the cold Midwestern ground. I'm Corey Zimmerman, and this is Spoon River Gothic. Gothic is a production of Lone Bird Media in association with CZ Studio and Radio Verite. The show is produced by August Olson, editing, directing, and producing by Corey Zimmerman, audio mastering and engineering by E. Mastered. Research is done by Anne-Marie Cannon, Chelsea Mesa, and me, Jinra Illustrisimo. Spoon River Gothic is written and hosted by Corey Zimmerman. You can follow the show at czstudio.works and read the blog at spoonrivergothic.com. Show some love by leaving us a rating or a review on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for the next episode as we dive deeper into the Donald Bull case. Thank you for listening. 
This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.